It's a treat, an honour and a balm to troubled times to open a new, fourth season of Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. I'm David Jays, and I still pinch myself when remarkable people, in and out of the dance world, tell us how dance has shaped their journeys. This time, we've managed a few more conversations in person, mostly in the RAD's snazzy new home in London. But whether I'm looking my guests in the eye or hearing their voices intimately in my ear, it's a privilege to share their time, stories and valuable reflections. This season is packed with treats. Poet, ballerina, choreographer, academic, plus a man who has been known to dress as a banana. But first off is a star among contemporary dance artists. Akram Khan, dancer, choreographer, director, dreamer, whose work has shaped the international landscape of contemporary dance. Akram first grabbed attention as a virtuoso in Katak, the Indian classical dance form, and at 13 appeared in Peter Brook's Mahabharata, a defining show of 20th century theatre. His own work pulls in Katak, contemporary dance and, increasingly, classical ballet. He's collaborated on the Olympic opening ceremony for London 2012 and with Juliette Binoche, Kylie Minogue and Anish Kapoor. Not all at once, sadly. This autumn, his company tours Jungle Book Reimagined and Outwitting the Devil and the London Film Festival will premiere a film by Asif Kapadia based on Akram's ballet, Creature, with English National Ballet. A chat with Akram is always heartfelt and thoughtful, spiralling off in unexpected directions. Let's see where this first conversation of our new season takes us. Akram, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Your work is all over the place in a very good way at the moment because your company is touring Jungle Book Reimagined and Outwitting the Devil and your production of Giselle is in Paris and the film of Creature is about to come out. When there's lots going on, are you good at spinning those plates? Are you able to choose where your focus needs to be? With existing work, as the performances that you've mentioned, I have a tribe of people, you know, I have a team of people, a, f- a family of people that are an extension of my voice, really, and people I would trust to make certain decisions. So they usually go on board, on tour, or wherever they are, because I can't be in all of those places. But I have immense trust on uh, particularly Maven Koo, who's like my brother, really, from another mother, you know. he trains the rehearsal directors up you can be a rehearsal director in another company or a school or something when you come to us there's a value system that you have to embody and learn about and there's a way that we make work and there's a way that we deal with people as well with dancers with technicians it's not just about the dance itself it's not just about what's on stage so they kind of go through a a course of six months of training really before they're on the road the training is 
pretty much diving in the deep end. And what I mean by that is they would come in, usually a new rehearsal director, if we're interested in them, obviously we would meet them, interview them, and then hear their backstory as well. And then when they come in, they would usually dive into the deep end. And what I mean by that is they would come into the beginning of a creation and be a fly on the wall and see how we work. For me, the most important way of learning is not by me telling them, is by them experiencing without words by watching what's happening, by listening to what's happening. The greatest gift for me that I ever got was not acting in Peter Brook's Mahabharata when I was 13 years old, just being able to listen to the actors converse with Peter. That for me was gold dust. I gained the most by learning there. So the rehearsal directors would then embody that, you know, after three to six months, and they would go on the road and take care of the work like it was their baby. And actually, you mentioned Peter Brook there, the great theatre director who died earlier this year. And as you said, you were performing with him when you were just 13. Did you have a sense of that kind of guru-like status? What was that experience like when you were so young? I wish I was older, but at the same time, I was really, I think in hindsight, it was great that I was 13. By the time I came out of it, I was 15. So being 13, the world is your oyster in the sense that you don't know much. I didn't know what art meant. I just thought it was a play and I was doing a play at the time. But because I was surrounded by such giants of actors, you know, from Poland, from Africa, from India, from Europe, it was just, it was just a beautiful collection of artists. And by being with them, what I realized in hindsight was they never separated art from life. Art was their life. So they were living art every moment. They're always never switched off from art. And so for that reason, being a 13-year-old, it was fantastic because when I came out of that project, I saw the world through that system. <laughs> it was never a job for me after that. I could never separate it to nine to five. I was already initiated into the world of being an artist. And the world of being an artist is you're just constantly are, you're not switching on and off. If I was older, maybe I would have developed certain ways of working that may have conflicted with the way they were working. So it was good that I was 13 in that respect. However, a lot of the stuff that they were discussing, I only started to understand many, many years later. So in that sense, I wish I was older because they were talking on very, very deep layers. You know, that was a seminal piece of work anyway. It changed theatre forever. You know, every few decades, there's a game changer. And Mahabharata was just that. I mean, Peter Brook was just that. But so it had a huge impact on me. Huge impact. I mean, the way I see the world today couldn't have happened without that experience. Not the way I see it now. And that thing of living your art morning to night every day, is that a comfortable way of being? Are there things you have to sacrifice, things that you can't quite do because your brain has a slightly different trajectory? If you feel it's a sacrifice, then you're definitely not yeah. loving what you do. Yeah, I think what I came to understand and appreciate was that these actors, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about a career. <laughs> For most of these actors, I'm not saying all, all of them were like that, but most of them, it was about the act of doing. It was about the art. And they never gave me a sense that they were sacrificing anything. I mean, look look at me right now in the sense that 
I'm retiring from dance. I've still got one more event of Xenos to perform next year. And that's it. And so through this particular COVID period, which was really strenuous on everyone, as I was coming to an end of my performing full-length work anyway, I wanted to find a way to grieve. I discovered Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So people ask me, you know, friends are asking me like, oh, why are you doing that? Are you sacrificing time with your kids or whatever? And I do it in my back studio. And I'm so obsessed with it <laughs> that I dream about it. Oh, wow. I'm in the bathroom, brushing my teeth, watching replays of matches. The only thing that stops me thinking about jiu-jitsu is when I'm in a studio with dance. Right. So that's a healthy thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> but it's never felt a sacrifice to me. I think it's really important as an artist, I, I say this quite often, is to find a pleasure in drowning. It's really, really important. And I needed to find the pleasure in drowning at this time of my life because it will help me change. It will impose change in me. And I feel there are four things as an artist, but as a human being, there are four changes that can happen, four seasons, four different seasons for change. The first one is people change when they hurt enough that they have to. The second one is when they see enough, they change because they're inspired to, because they've seen enough. The third one is they change when they learn enough that they want to. And the fourth one is when they receive enough that they are able to. For me, change is absolutely, apart from death, it is the absolute truth. <laughs> Every second, your body is changing with time. Your thoughts are changing. Your love towards someone is changing. Even if it's minutely changing, it's changing because it means it's moving. It means it's alive. Even if it's going backwards or one would consider it backwards, like we're going towards death as we get older, that's also a change. I always say in life, we're continuously in motion. Even if we're still, we're breathing. And in death, our bodies are continuously decomposing. So life and death, we're continuously in motion. Sorry, I'm using that quote that I said in zero degrees, but it, it's something that I hold on to very strongly. One thing I remember through doing, going back to Peter Brooks Mahabharata, is Peter's comments towards his notes or response after a show in a post-show gathering where we would gather together and he would give notes was so different to three months down the line. And that's something also I learned from him that actually the work is changing, but also he's changing. He goes away from it and he comes back and he sees something else. And I think change is very hard for us because we live in a modern world. In the modern world, we've built museums because we want to hold on to we have the arrogance of mankind to think we can hold on to moments of our lives in memory. So we build museums almost like a photograph. But what you don't realize, even the photograph is decomposing. And even your view of that is changing. Because if I see something at the portrait gallery, for example, and I have a certain experience with it, and then I go away for a year and I come back and the portrait's in the same place and I look at it again, the portrait hasn't changed, but I've changed because I've lived life. So change is something we don't really pay attention to enough. And does that sense of change alter your relationship with your existing work? Because as you say, a lot of it remains in circulation for quite a while. As you re-engage with it, do you feel differently about it? It would probably be the most frustrating things 
the most difficult things for, I would say, a lot of classical dancers, Western classical dancers and Indian classical dancers to deal with me in that respect. Because not all of them, but quite a lot of them, until they got used to me. Once they've done one process with me, they kind of laugh it off. To give you an example, there was a, a wonderful Japanese woman who was notating Giselle. Do you know what that's called, by the way, where they notate the whole of Giselle? Oh, yeah. Um, notation, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah. The, but the there's Spanish, a certain... the Spanish yes, yes, movement right. notation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they were doing that. During the process, they would come back like a week later and the same scene has completely changed. <laughs> and then she's so sweet, this woman. I'm so terrible to forget her name, but she's amazing. And she would say, oh, Akram, you changed it. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and I feel differently about it now. And then by the premiere, she was almost ripping her hair out she was crying a lot <laughs> but she loved the work so much and she says i presume you're going to come back and change it again the next time you see it and i said i don't know and then i came back and of course things had changed that is hard for certain dancers and i think if you really know me if you really know me the one thing that is consistent is the inconsistency of me when i say inconsistency sorry what i mean by that is I don't make the same comment twice. I don't have the same view twice because I'm coming back to it in a new way. I see something else this time. And the famous story that I remember holding on to is Stravinsky, where Stravinsky used to conduct sometimes Rite of Spring. So as he got older, it got faster. <laughs> I think the thing is, your relationship to the work changes, you know, as time goes by. And that's what happens with me, you know. Basically, I go deeper and deeper. I try to go for more deeper layers, let's say. And that can be frustrating because I remember some dancers, for example, at English National Ballet, just a few, would sometimes come up to me and say, but Akram, you said it was like this. <laughs> and I said, you trust me? <laughs> like, uh, I said it was like that at that moment. And I'm changing. And that's a betrayal in a sense. That's a lack of character to some people. You know, that's a yeah. sense of doubt. But I'm full of doubts, you know, constantly. If I love something, I will question it. I'm full of doubts. And uh, I think it's important to constantly re-question, re-evaluate. What's it like revisiting a piece and remembering where your head and where your heart were when you made it? Is it kind of like an encounter with a slightly younger version of yourself? You know, it's always a disappointment. <laughs> always. I don't know why. I'm so delusional. <laughs> People say a lot about my work and myself. They give the opinion that I'm so grounded. I'm quite delusional because I'm sure it was better. Every time I come back to something, I'm like, but I had it in my head that it was amazing. I'm, I'm constantly going, oh, that's a flaw. Why would I have chosen that? Why would I have done that? Because at the time, like the French saying goes, is that when your nose is too close to the bicycle handles, you don't see the road ahead of you. So when you're too close to it, you don't see the bigger picture. And so as time goes by and you come back and you're like, Actually, I've taken distance from this. I can see things that are not working that I couldn't before. So I'm hugely disappointed usually, but not in the performance, but more in myself. It's really a self-disappointment every time because I, I, when I was going through it during that intense creation of it, it felt so real and so right. 
at the time. And, and so I big that up in my head of my memory. My memory is always romantic about something, even the ones where, you know, I got dumped by my girlfriend, my first girlfriend or whatever. If I gave you the encounter of what happened of that being dumped, um, it would be a complete different version much more poetic version to the actual reality, which probably the girl who dumped me would probably give <laughs> the real account of what happened. <laughs> so my memories, it's just the way my brain is wired, is that 50% is truth. The other 50% I filled in with imagination. And I think a lot of artists probably do that. Uh, that's my guess. The brains are wired differently in that way. Logic is wired differently. Time is wired. We see time differently. It's like, you know, Jungle Book, every month or two, I'm going back and changing something. But the young dancers that we have in Jungle Book are super excited because they're doing it, they're doing it often. So they get excited by new energy and new information. And so it will continue to go until April when it hits London, of course. So I'm super excited about that. And then after that, I'll continue to change it. So it never stays the same. <laughs> and maybe that's healthier than coming out of the theatre going, well, that guy was a genius and feeling distressed that you, you can't any longer reach the summit of your youthful achievement. Maybe it's better to be disappointed in past self. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I'd love to be in awe of myself once, <laughs> at least once in my lifetime. <laughs> uh, just once would be amazing. Seriously, I am so self-critical. The people that I keep very close to me are very critical towards me. They're the truth sayers, I say. You know, my mother, Yuko, my wife, Maven, Ruth Little, when she was with me, my drama talk. I have a close few tribe members who just don't pander to the name stuff, you know, that whatever I, that, that doesn't mean anything to them. Those kind of people I need to keep really close to me because the truth is there is no end point. I'm just at a, at a point in my journey. And people like to encapsulate that in a, in a kind of a way that says, okay, there's a beginning and there's an end. This is where you are in your journey. Peter Brook, he was continuously growing in his, and Stravinsky and artists like that, well, he died in his 90s, right? But he he was still making work. Like, he was in the theater for many hours still. Now, I was talking to his daughter. She was saying he's continuously working and refining his art, refining his craft, re-questioning everything he did. I think it's important to understand that if you want to be an artist, it's difficult because we live in a world especially in the dance world, where the dancer in the Western concept has very little time, mm. right? It's yeah. a very short-lived dance career. Absolutely. In India, it's much longer. Indian classical dance, right? You get better after 50, really. Right. You right. really get to know your form after 50 because it doesn't depend upon athletism. Whereas in Western classical dance or Western modern dance, there is a huge emphasis on, you know, athletism. I don't know, just... For me, the end point is so far away that I don't even know there's an end. I know that I make a lot of mistakes and it used to be a privilege to make mistakes. I just have to be more careful as I get older. The more famous you become, the more, unfortunately, the more, well, you just have to, it's just the way it goes. You have to be more careful. Because there uh, are more people looking. Yeah. And they're more judgmental. They don't expect you to make mistakes. But for me, then I lose the pleasure of drowning. You know, that's when you stop being an artist, really. 
when you put yourself in the unknown and find yourself in the unknown, you find, re-find yourself again. You know, I don't know what it's like to be in a war. I hope I never will, but that may not be the case, unfortunately. But my parents lived through a war. And I remember my mom telling me, it changes you completely. And you cannot undo what you experienced. She had to re-find who she was in that moment of chaos. You know, one moment, you know, you're at home, you're in the village, you're living your life, you're young. She was in the 20s and then suddenly death all around you. You know, everything is chaos. You're running for your life. Suddenly, this is sudden. Suddenly, you you know, a year later, you're in London and you're having a baby, which was me. And you had to find yourself again. Who Who was that person? I was young. I was I was this Bangladeshi girl. My father was this genius mathematician. I used to live in this village. I got married and war, and then I lost people and I lost family and I lost friends and I'm in London. Who am I now? So I think it's important to sometimes, we just get too comfortable, I think. And sometimes, not all of us, but definitely some of us, especially when success is involved because it becomes a formula. So I'm a little bit careful and conscious about the industry where we can serve the industry where they want another success in the same way. You know, I'm never going to make Giselle part two. <laughs> well, has know, he, I didn't has anyone him... asked whether you would do a no. Giselle for them, as it were, or something similar? Has anyone said, oh, go on, do a Swan Lake now. Come on, Akram. Many people have asked. Uh-huh. Many artistic directors from constantly from the ballet companies, which is such a privilege and an honour at the same time that, Because I'm not from that world in that way, you know. I I haven't been trained in the classical ballet world. You know, I'm not homegrown in that genre. But I have something to offer, I feel. But for me, yes, straight after Giselle. Carmen, I was offered. Nutcracker, many times. Swan Lake, the list goes on. But for me, what was important was I did Giselle, that's it. Next thing I don't want to do is another classic. I'll come back to a classic perhaps, but I need to come back with new experience. So when I look at this other classic, I will see it from a different viewpoint with a different experience. And so I felt, no, actually, I want to tackle a play, you know, Wojtek. And that was in discussion with Ruth, of course. The origin of that was Ruth, of course, my dramaturg. And so Ruth Little and I really loved the concept of Wojtek. And you could shift the scenes in different orders and it would still somehow make sense. And that was really exciting. And but I needed to relate it to me and the world that we're living in right now. So yeah, I didn't want to make a formulaic success again. And then Jungle Book came along. You know, I wanted to always make Jungle Book and I put myself certain conditions, dogmas, you know, where, okay, I'm not going to have a huge set. How do I make a work that is lighter in set wise because of climate change? And how do we have less carbon fruit? If we don't adapt and change, I think um, things will die out, right? Mm. And you mentioned the piece based on Wojtzeck, which is Creature, which um, English National Ballet premiered, and which has now been basis of a film by um, Asif Kapadia, who I guess is best known for his documentary work. How is that collaboration with someone from a different creative discipline do you have to be slightly less possessive of things? Is it easy to kind of to meet them and their vision on, on equal terms? It is and not. it is not, depending on how their experience goes, depending on what those two characters' personality is. Mm. 
with Asif, he's so graceful. He's such a listener. He really immerses himself. Actually, his whole team were brilliant to work with. He's made something very powerful based on the work. And um, it was really interesting because, in a sense, Asif comes from documentary making. So there's something about that it needs to be very, everything needs to be really clear. To the frustration of most critics, I live in the world of ambiguity. Jungle Book wasn't so ambiguous because that was really script-based. But then a lot of my work is, there's something very ambiguous or metaphoric, let's say, heavily on metaphors so and symbolic. Asif, it was this push and pull where he's like, look, my mates don't get this. Like, you know, this point. What is she thinking? What is he <laughs> doing? Where are we? So it was very beautiful for me to learn from him about, you know, his audience. It wasn't my audience. It was his audience because my audience is me. I'm the only audience for my work. I put a thousand, if there's a thousand seats, there's a thousands of me watching, <laughs> criticizing my work. What do I want from a work of mine? If I'm in the audience, I want to yeah. be hit in the gut and don't understand anything. Literally. And only months later, that feeling of being hit in the guts by the work emotionally filters upwards towards my brain. And I go, ah, oh, I think I, I think I got that. So it's experiential. It's not conceptual. It's not intellectual. It shouldn't hit my brain. I don't want to show how intelligent. I don't want them to see the craft. I, I fail at it every time. I think Peanut was amazing at it. The best for me at it. Yeah, Peanut Bausch. When I see the choreography in the work, like really clearly, like, wow, that, that craft is amazing. Oh my God, that's amazing. And that's amazing. Oh, I can see how intelligent. That's not the choreographer I want to be. Where me in the audience going, I'm seeing me use my technical muscles, showing off my technical muscles. I would love to be in a situation and it's never happened. I would love to be in a situation where you've experienced something and it felt like I didn't even touch it. It was just meant to be. So I'm talking really, again, poetically, but I kind of like to live in that world because it's more timeless in a way. But yeah, again, I'm digressing always. Sorry. <laughs> I guess one of the ways in which time does impact on a dance career is, as you've said, on performing. And you've mentioned that you're saying farewell to at least big solo full-length shows and i akram spent my dance watching life watching you pretty much and just marveling at your bite and your grace and your ferocity and your intensity and so it's quite hard for me to believe that you're really stepping away is there not a kind of a crackle of the live performance that is difficult to replicate elsewhere I think what I think the biggest thing that happened with me was children. <laughs> right. And I think that changed everything. Right. And I still I wake up at five or, or six and five thirty, drop my kids off at the school bus and they the bus takes them to school. I come back home, I train for four hours, and then I start working. My life begins at twelve. So eight till twelve is mine. Okay. But for me, Apart from that, when I'm away performing, I miss my kids a lot. I mean, I can't do anything about it in the morning, so that's great because they're at school. So that's fine. <laughs> but here's, here's the contradiction, sacrifice. 
we were speaking about sacrifice oh, yes. earlier. So yes, right. it's the first moment I felt I was sacrificing my time with my children because I was missing certain things. You know, that moment when you go into a Christmas performance and they're doing playing the shepherd or something, you know? Yeah. And that's never going to come back. So in some respects, the lockdown and COVID and stuff um, pushed me to stay home more and locally. So I didn't miss performing touring. However, I do miss that feeling of falling off the edge the moment you enter the stage. That sense that it's not in my control now. So dive in. Just dive. You don't know how to swim, but just dive. You've done the homework in your head. You've done it physically, but you don't know how to swim. You can swim in a swimming pool. You've trained all your life. But the moment you hit the stage, you're in the ocean. And that feeling of preparing yourself, but knowing that you are not enough prepared because the ocean is stronger than you, that feeling is you feel when you see life when somebody's born because it's so close to death anything can go wrong and you experience it for example i experienced it recently two months ago when my father took his last breath in my arms in the hospital that's why we're on stage because it makes you feel it makes you feel the reality of living you suddenly become alive on stage because that what it is is a focus of a thousand people plus yourself in a 10 meter by 14 meter space where everybody gives you their attention. And that's what you cannot put science and words onto. It's becomes sacred. It becomes intense. And so time suddenly starts to float and it starts to suspend. There's a suspension there and anything is possible at that moment, no matter how much you've trained. And I think the more the modern world becomes modern, the more we're going to miss that sense of abandonment, the sense that we are not in control. And I think COVID kind of did that to us as well. We realized how minute we were. Imagine an invisible organism, humankind to its knees, the entire world, literally. Something that is so minute, small, you know, a virus. And that's a gift and a curse from nature, of course, but it did that. So when I'm on stage, because you're exposing yourself to a thousand people, that's why I don't read reviews because I hear certain people I trust, artists particularly, much senior to me, sometimes much younger to me, I'll listen to what they have to say about what they've experienced of the show. But I try not to read reviews because when it's good, you can easily be swayed that, yes, that's good. And when it's bad, you can easily be swayed that's bad. But I have to have a conviction in what I do. And it has to be my journey. Otherwise, I'm pandering to an industry that is also changing, which is fine. But I don't want to change with its change. I want to change because I want to change. And I want to tell the story I want to tell the story in. And I want to learn from my mistakes, not from somebody else telling me those are your mistakes. I grew up with a father who, from the moment I was born, felt that I was a mistake, you know? So on one end, my father was always whispering into my ears. I think he had a lot of frustrations and demons in himself. And he would say, 
you will amount to nothing. That was the daily mantra in the morning before I went to school because I was failing all my school studies. You know, in those days, they didn't understand ADHD. They didn't understand that a kid could be wired differently. In the other ear, my mother would counter that just before I left. She would say, people who feel you will fail only fear what you are able to become. They cannot imagine what you can become. So this contradiction has stayed with me since I was a babe, literally since I could understand words. And my sister did very well in academics. So my whole community, Bangladeshi community, my generation, they all went to private school. Because, you know, my parents' generation lived through war. So they came here. They said, at least their children will get better education. So they sent them to private school. Everybody spoke posh. Everybody was like super intelligent or whatever. And I was the only one who was like from South London. All right, mate, you know. So I, I grew up in a very different <laughs> atmosphere. And I loved state school at that time, you know. It was like, they were my mates. We were bunking. We were setting up fire alarms. I mean, I was really, <laughs> I was really, really naughty. But I was, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't sit in front of a desk and be told what to learn, how to learn. Yeah. Unless somebody went to me, I remember Peter, in the first week of rehearsals, I remember we were reading and he asked me something. He said, how would you do that? I'm a 13-year-old kid. What the hell do I know? But he asked me, how would you do that? What are you feeling at this moment? If somebody came to you and said, I knew your grandparents, I knew your ancestors, which was Vyasa's saying to me, my character, do you know who you are? Questioning me, how would you feel if you start doubting yourself, if you didn't know who you were? That's when I started go going, I'm in the right place. I found my education. The Mahabharata, I need to be in this environment because I couldn't be told by other people all the time by parafashion what to learn. I think there's a huge problem in the education system. I think there's something beautiful about repeating and learning something. Yes, my head wasn't wired in that way. My brain wasn't wired in that way. So I grew up with so many kind of contradictions of what my father wanted me, wanted me to be. And my mother, on the other hand, was like, be who you want to be. Mm -hmm. if, if you need to go through imitating Michael Jackson, <laughs> Bruce Lee, Muhammad Ali, I was very good at imitating. You know, I used to yeah. watch their interviews and, you know, record them on VHS, you know, from the TV. In those days, we had those VHS videos and I would just watch it again and again and again. And I would start talking like them. And I would start, <laughs> you know, I need to go through that too because they were my superheroes. And I'm not saying Madonna was not my superhero. She was as well, but in a different way, you know, I feel like all those things shape the way you see the world, the lens you see the world. So what I'm trying to say is your childhood is very important because your childhood shapes the way you see the world as an adult. It really does. And that's why I always say your parents and your family and the people that you've had conflict and tension and love with in your childhood are always on stage with you. So I never just make a solo. There are multiple characters that are on stage with me, multiple people that have been in my life that are always on stage. I never feel alone. Akram, we have digressed, we have roamed, we have, no, this is good. We've taken beautiful scenic routes. I'm just now going to try and 
bring you back home with one sure. last question sure. <laughs> and I'll let you go. Have I, I actually, like, I feel like a politician. Have I answered any of your questions? <laughs> well, unlike a politician, you've said far more interesting things, but there is one last question, which I'm yeah. going to ask. And, and it's the question of why dance matters to you. I think I don't know how to answer that question. And I think that's why it's probably absolutely important to me. It's probably the most important survival thing for me, for me to survive, for me to be alive. I don't know. And it's okay for me not to know. I just, all I do know is if I don't have dance, I'm as good as dead. Akram, it has been so beautiful to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I couldn't have predicted where that conversation would roam. Everywhere from the intimacies of family to the wide, starry skies of speculation. But I loved Akram's impassioned plea for change and renewal. I'd love to know how you felt about what Akram had to say. Please do get in touch. I'm at Mr. David Jays on Twitter and the RAD is at RAD headquarters. There's loads more about Akram's current work and about the RAD in our show notes. And we'll be thrilled if you could subscribe, like or review the podcast so that we can find other people who might enjoy Why Dance Matters. Our guest today was Akram Khan. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan. And our artwork is by Bex Glendinning. And always changing, always constant, is our producer, Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.